you know, I'm a pure data guy. And if you have a pile of data in front of me that overwhelmingly says, look, this works, I, I, the statistician, this young guy, this uh, fresh out of school kid, I don't care. Why, why would I care about mechanism of action? It, the data say it works, therefore it works. And what I didn't appreciate at the time, obviously, was that mechanism of action is part of a package of, of information. Yeah, it's not just numbers on a page. The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. MentorMate empowers healthcare clients to deliver on their mission and transform the human experience through technology. For over 20 years, clients have trusted MentorMate to guide their vision, design innovative products, and build secure solutions while understanding the specific nuances of their industry. MentorMate's global team in the U.S., Eastern Europe, and Latin America helps clients in all sectors of healthcare transform their organizations. From Fortune 500 pharmaceutical companies and commercial payers to hospital systems, medical device manufacturers, and beyond. Learn more at mentormate.com healthcare. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone out there in Medical Alley. This is your host, Frank Chiskalki, on another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm about 95% confident that this is going to be a great conversation, and I think you'll understand why once we get into it with Scott Brown, who's the Chief Scientific Strategist at Bright Research Partners. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Frank. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to talk a, a quite a bit about clinical research, about studies. But before we do that, maybe just for the audience, could you give us a quick intro on, on you and then also a little bit on Bright Research Partners? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I am a statistician by training. My bright title is one of those florid things that we come up with uh, as people's careers grow and you move into different stuff. But I am a statistician by training, uh, got my PhD from the University of Minnesota and have spent most, not quite all, but most of my career in clinical trials. Uh, I worked for Medtronic once upon a time. I've worked for a couple of different clinical research organizations. Uh, I even freelanced for a few years and, uh, and almost all of my work has been in devices. And that's what we do at Bright. So Bright Research Partners, we are a contract research organization. Uh, we've been around for 15 years. Our founder, Andrea Fenton Abs, started the company back in 2008, and we execute. We run clinical trials. That's our job. And we do it almost entirely in medical devices because organically, that's where Andrea's background is, and those are the people she hired were device people. So it's a great place to work, and uh, I'm really glad to, to be there. Yeah, and I can echo that, having known Andrea for many years now and having been able to work with you guys all that time. Fantastic group of people. And in kind of an, an oddity for today, folks, as we're recording this, right when we finish the podcast, I'm going to dash out of the office and I'm having lunch, uh, not with Bright, but in the building at Hen House. So I'll be like 50 feet away from the whole team, although probably on a Friday, maybe they won't be there as much. <laughs> I, I want to back up for a little bit before we talk about the healthcare side. I'd read, so you were at Northwest Airlines, which mm -hmm. for those who might not remember, now Delta, and at Target. 
what what was that about being in this completely different industry? And then how'd you end up in, in med tech? So I actually had had uh, a job, my first real job uh, was at Medtronic. And I worked in their, uh, one of their base groups from their founding, which is to say uh, pacing. And I was there for a while. And, and here's what happened. Uh, in my youth, especially, I was easily distracted by shiny objects. And I had a friend <laughs> who left Medtronic and went over to uh, to Northwest, and he called me up a few months later and said, "Hey, you know, it's real fun over here. There's there's all kinds of interesting math stuff going on, much more than you might think." He said, "You want to come over?" And I said, "Sure, why not?" Because again, at the time, uh, it seemed interesting. It seemed different, and I uh, right hadn't on. really settled on my career path. <laughs> so, same. It's literally the same thing with Target. The same friend left Northwest and went to Target, called me up and said. <laughs> Hey, you want to come over here? And I said, sure. Well, then what happened is we both settled into a, a career path that made sense for each of us. And I had gotten a call from a friend uh, named Chris Pulling, who founded the Integra ah. Group, uh, co-founded, I should say. I don't want to fail to give credit where it's due. And so I joined Integra, and that was my return to, to clinical trials, to medical devices. And I've been there ever since. Uh, so that was it, really a detour, but a very interesting one. Oh, very fun. And I, I am a big fan of that. Uh, I've, I've always loved the concept of to be interesting, you have to be interested. And even though I've been at one place for 18 years now, it, it's been every job under the sun. And it's just been whatever is interesting, go try it out, see what you learn and have fun along the way. And I, I got to give a shout out to Chris, uh, who's now working on a new startup. But yes. great example of the kind of people in this community who you know, stay connected, help build up the industry and are always there to help. As you made that transition back into the device world, then with Integra, you mentioned doing some freelancing. I know throughout the years, it's been working with a lot of different products and companies without maybe naming names. Are there any areas you found where you're like, this was just so interesting or more exciting that you got to work on? Yes, I, I can. Um, and I, I'm even happy to name some names, even though it's not necessary, mm -hmm. because Bright actually, it turns out, we, medical device, you know, it's it's a big field, obviously, we both know that. And there are so many therapeutic divisions that, uh, that come into play. And what has happened is in much the same way that Bright organically is a device CRO, because our people are device people, uh, I am probably most closely connected with stroke, ischemic stroke. And this happened because uh, years ago I was working for uh, Integra and then for a company called EV3. And some of us folks out there will remember EV3. They got bought by Covidian, which then got bought by Medtronic and the cycle of life continues. And EV3 had a prominent <laughs> neurovascular division and they were doing work on stroke. And so what happens is, right, you, you spend time in a space, you get to know people, and then when you become available for later projects, when I went out uh, freelancing, I would start getting calls from people who wanted help in stroke studies. And I've told, I've told a number of folks this, uh, that the, the high point of my career, and I hope it's not the last high point, but the <laughs> moment I remember best in my entire career was in 2015, uh, the International Stroke Conference was held in Nashville and they presented a, a series of randomized clinical trial data on treatment of ischemic stroke with what's now called mechanical thrombectomy. And it was just, yeah. it, it, was yeah. a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience to be there and have been a small part of it because it was a real impact on, on yeah. some people. It was really fun. 
oh, that's cool. And that that's not that long ago. And no. it still amazes me in the, in this industry how many big therapeutic areas there are that we're still advancing in. Like I, I didn't even realize it. it wasn't that long ago that mechanical thrombectomy wasn't you know wasn't as well established as we we now think of it as almost kind of normal. It's uh, it's funny. The last speaker at that conference, I uh, want to give him a shout out to Mayank Goyal, who is at the University of Calgary and is a thought leader in the space. Mayank's a, uh, he's a delightful presenter, and he got up to give the summation at that conference where there had been this series of trial data presented, just overwhelming effectiveness, really, really good news for stroke patients. And Mayank got up there and uh, and, you know, basically said, hey, um, here's all the data again, just so we all just saw it. And and Mike literally said, effective now, this is the standard of care. And if he had had a microphone he could drop, he would have dropped it. And he walked off the stage and that was it. And it was, it was what it was, uh, this incredible wow. advance that suddenly came into the light. Wow. Well, and, and I know the, the statistics that go into that, the analysis that goes into, you know, determining what came out of a clinical trial is so important. But I think for a, a lot of people, it can it is very complex, maybe not as well understood as it should be, given how important it is. Could you just talk about like what is the role of a biostatistician in this industry and how is how is that role or how has that work evolved over your career? I think most statisticians work divides into two chunks and you tend to shift from one more towards the other as you go along in your career. So there's one piece, which is it's, it's data analysis. It's just what everybody thinks statisticians do. We run a clinical trial. There's a gigantic database full of uh, patient information. And literally our job is to analyze the data and to draw conclusions. And for that, of course, you know, we have tools, we have standardized software packages. Uh, nobody has to do this, you know, with chalk and blackboards like they were solving <laughs> equations in the twenties. So that part is mostly just a matter of, of training uh, and technical expertise. And it, it's critical. It's the most critical thing because it has to be right. And that's, that's obviously the catch. Uh, everyone makes mistakes, but that's not the place to make a mistake. The other piece is, is at the front end. So when do the data come in? Well, toward the end, you've got all the data now. Let's do an analysis. Before then, at the start, when you go to design the trial, that's the other piece where a statistician can and hopefully will be helpful. Because when we go to design a clinical trial, we ask ourselves, okay, what are we trying to prove? Uh, what endpoints, what data, you know, what information do we need to prove that to the satisfaction of whoever the stakeholders are? Maybe it's FDA, maybe it's uh, reimbursement organizations, uh, maybe it's just clinical science. And once you've decided that, the next question you back up to is, okay, how much of this information are we going to need and in what form in order to, to give people the evidence they need? Those things are the realm of the statistician. So we have a pulse of responsibility at the start, which is design. Then there's, I don't want to say it's a fallow period because you're always planning and preparing and keeping people informed. But then at the end, there's another pulse, which is the trial is done. Uh, let's analyze it and see what we've got. And my experience, at least, is that you tend to start out in the analysis phase because statisticians almost invariably come out of school with analytical skills. Uh, that's what we're trained for when we go get, uh, you know, our, our master's or PhDs or whatever degree we have. The design part requires experience because you have to know what's expected. And it's much more about human factors. What is FDA accustomed to? What's not just what does the rule book say, but what does this group, for example, 
expect to see from you. What's their what's their tradition? What's their history? What is the uh, what's the background? So those things you can only get by doing. Um, and so that you tend to move into as time passes. Well, and when you're working with clients, you know, I, I'm always curious, like, are there areas that companies seem to regularly get wrong or underestimate or discount in ways they shouldn't? Like, what are the things you tell companies like, hey, you're going to think this matter doesn't matter or you don't need to do it, but it does. Yeah, the uh, fun one, this, is, this isn't even statistics per se, but <laughs> the, the single most poorly estimated quantity in clinical trials, as far as I can tell, is enrollment rate. <laughs> Part of that, because we all, it all makes sense, right? There is yep. uh, the rules, the rules of statistics in clinical trials or in anywhere uh, exist to make sure that we've gathered enough evidence to prove our point. And yep. so it's a set of guideposts, right? It's, it's limitations on what you are and are not allowed to say, given the data at hand. But when you ask yourself, okay, uh, we're planning this trial and we really would like to have it done by the end of 2025. And somebody like me or one of the folks at Bright who work on these things, will put together a schedule and we'll say, oh, you know, you have, uh, you know, if you enroll one patient per site per month, uh, will be done in 2026. And then the uh, then the bargaining begins, the bargaining with yeah. Mother Nature. Uh, that's, that's the one. I, <laughs> this isn't quite true, but it's almost true to say, I'm not sure I've ever seen a study that enrolled as fast as the initial hope that it would. Mm-hmm. Eventually we get the, we get it done at the end, but, uh, but yeah, that's not even stats, but it's right there all the time. Oh, it, it makes so much sense though. It's, it's the thing that you probably as a, as a sponsor have the least control over because so you're dependent on so many other parties. So true. And that's where, uh, yeah, you, you, you ask yourself what, what matters in terms of enrollment rate. If I'm asked to predict, and I'll get these questions sometimes, uh, and honestly, statistics is great at certain things and less at others. What are we not so good at? Situations where every single case is unique, right? If you give me 100 things that are all the same and ask me to do an estimate, here's a trial with 100 patients in it. Uh, Scott, you know, what's the success rate supposed to look like? Well, I have 100 examples. If you give me 100 different trials and say, here's the background in this space, every one of those trials was different. Every one of the people involved were different. The patients were different. The, the site staff were different. The sponsors were different. The funding was different. I don't actually have a great basis for estimation. I have a bunch of anecdotes that are hard to combine into a reliable estimate. So yeah, it's hard to do. Uh, and it's, it's frustrating, honestly, for me as a professional too, because it's one of the more important things you want to get right. And it's just hard. Right. Oh, wow. So what do you end up saying to the clients and what do you end up saying to the companies as they're trying to think through how they, they I guess, manage that risk or manage that challenge? Yeah, we, we tend we tend to suggest Again, sometimes folks will come in with, uh, you know, there really is a great background or there is a uh, there is a reliable prior case like, oh, look, we just ran this same study on a different product three years ago. We kind of know how it looks. And now, right. Sure. That's a reasonable basis for taking an estimate. But what will happen more often is is we will find that the enrollment rate is lower than it's hoped. And so we'll, we'll try to you know, we just try to suggest that. And here's the thing. All of these things are our risk as the sponsor and as the CRO. Right. Yeah. The statistics are designed. It's funny. Statistics are designed in large part in clinical science to protect FDA. 
uh, statistical analysis, rigorous statistics prevent us from saying, hey, this device works when, you know, maybe it doesn't mm. or uh, or, hey, this device is safe when maybe it's not. The point of most statistics in the eyes of the FDA is to give them assurance that you have proven your point with you know, with a reasonable level of confidence. This uh, enrollment rate, uh, this is one of those things where they have no yeah. risk, right? They don't care if the study takes three years or five years or eight years to run. It's all the risk is on you. So luckily in the end, you know, even if the trial enrolls more solely than one would hope, the cost is normally, okay, now it's going to cost a little more money because we have to keep the doors open, all of us and the lights on. But yeah, I, we just try to reach a reasonable consensus and go from there. Yeah. You know, this may be as a, slightly broader, more almost philosophical question, but you mentioned, you know, reasonable level of confidence. Yes. And I, I think about the, you know, the last couple of years and how statistics kind of entered the general lexicon and most of us, myself included, are not really equipped to handle the nuance of it. When we talk about a reasonable level of confidence, like from where do we establish that? So the, uh, almost every statistical analysis somewhere in there we're going to hear people talk about p-values right you and i have both heard about p-values p value p value what's the p-value so without going into eye numbing uh brain freezing technical details the, what the p-value is supposed to be is the a measure of the unlikelihood that you could have gotten the results you did if there really were no effect. So if you run a randomized trial and you've got a primary endpoint and maybe it's symptom remission, maybe it's mortality, maybe it's uh, maybe it's having you know cleared a, an atherosclerotic blood vessel, mm -hmm. whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You're done. Now here's your p-value. P-value is 0.03. Okay. Well, what that's what that means, it's not supposed to mean. What that does mean is that if there truly is no effect and you just are looking at these results through dumb luck, there is a 0.03, 3% chance that you should have seen results that good. That's all it is. Um, and so the smaller that gets, obviously, the other way to look at it is that if you have a p-value of 0.03, we have 97% confidence. It, it's not probability, and that's boring, and I'm not going to waste everyone's time with that, but we now have 97% confidence that the result that we're seeing is real. So that's all the p-value is. It's just meant to say if that number gets really small, your confidence in your results that, that the, the effect is real and you're seeing something that actually has happened and not just chance is very high. And the only question left is everyone also knows uh, 0 0.05. 0 0.05 is the magic p-value, right? If you have a p-value of <laughs> 0.049, it's significant. And now everybody wins and we, uh, you know, we go to the party. And if it's 0.051, you know, everyone scratches their head and asks what went wrong, even though in reality there's no difference between those values. There's not a practical difference, but somebody has to draw a line somewhere. Right. And you might ask, yeah, like why, why 0 0.05? 0 0.05 is saying there's a 5% chance of seeing these data by luck. Uh, why 0 0.05? And it's one of those lovely, I talked before about how FDA has expectations built out of precedent and history and consensus. And that's how, right, all, all human organizations work that way. We all set our standards according to what seems reasonable. And what the story goes, and this this is an anecdote, it might be an aphorism, it might never have happened, but <laughs> the guy who invented p-values was named Ronald Fisher. Uh, he's as famous as a statistician can be. And the legend is that uh, Ronald Fisher invented p-values and somebody came to him one day and said, you know, uh, Professor Fisher, you know, we've got these p-values now and 
uh, where where should the cutoff be? Like how low is low? What when when should we be confident that something is going on? And the legend goes that Ronald Fisher, with his feet up on his desk or something like that, just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, "One in twenty. And the <laughs> eight, the intern walked off, and that was the end of the story. Did that really happen? Who knows? But that's that's the that's the joke that we tell amongst ourselves. Oh, I love that, and it you know that that also I think really connects the idea of you know, you, you can do the math, you get the results, but it's got to tie back to the, the reality of what you're doing, right? Sometimes it just doesn't make sense, or sometimes you can clearly see the effect. And if, if the connection between the therapy and what you're doing, the physiology, the engineering, and the math line up, you're probably going to end up being more confident than yes. you just yes. get a result, but you don't know why, or you, yes. you don't know yes. that it should yes. be that way. And thank you so much for pointing that out because you've reminded me of, you know, one of the things FDA wants to see is, of course, right, we have a pile of data, we've analyzed it, we've followed the rules, we've gotten the results, and but FDA is going to be more convinced where you have things like, okay, is there a coherent mechanism of action? Yeah. We're in devices, right? And on the drug side, the effects are systemic and it's harder to pull apart exactly what's going on. We've all seen ads on TV, which uh, treat, uh, they're, they're for medications that treat conditions like depression. And, and the narration will literally have to say things like, well, the mechanism of action is not known. And that happens. But on the device side, the mechanism of action is usually pretty clear. And FDA wants to know what the mechanism of action is. And I'm saying I, I'm enthusiastic about this because I remember when I was early in my career thinking, you know, I'm a pure data guy. And if you have a pile of data in front of me that overwhelmingly says, look, this works, I, I, this statistician, this young guy, this uh, fresh out of school kid, I don't care. Why, why would I care about mechanism of action? It, the data say it works, therefore it works. And what I didn't appreciate at the time, obviously, was that mechanism of action is part of a package of, right. of information. Yeah, it's not just numbers on a page. Right on. Yeah, and that that uh, wisdom gained from time and experience so critical in this industry where we are building products on top of knowledge that sometimes is generations older, you know, and it might be in almost an aphorism of we don't know quite how we started down this path, but here we are. I, I'm curious, maybe as we come towards the end of this, you know, when, you, when you're working with clients, like this is an industry that is very technical. By and large, you have people that are, are relatively sophisticated, even if they don't have the maths background, but you can quickly get into things that are very complicated, very technical, and require the specialist expertise, which is you know why people like you are glad you're around. When you're engaging with the companies, you know, how do you how do you talk to them about those things if they maybe truly don't appreciate or understand the the nuance of some of those mechanisms or of the tests that are being done? How do you help bring them along on that journey? Yeah, I. I... I'm really enthusiastic about the part of my job that is communicating with, with everybody else, right? Statisticians are just mm -hmm. the tiniest corner of this field. And we are as a profession, not, uh, not known necessarily as uh, really, you know, voluble communicators or uh, super gregarious people, uh, which is one of the things I love about us. But when the time comes to talk to folks, you're talking to a, a clinical affairs manager or a director of regulatory or whoever it might be, 
you know, part of the job is to be able to talk about these things in a way that, you know, that's understandable to everybody. And I guess the way I think of it is there's a lot of technical fields that we all interface with in our daily lives where someone's job is to explain it to us in a way that makes sense. Uh, every time we all go to see our, our physicians, right, or perhaps you see a specialist, you go see a neurologist, the thing that they do uh, when they're good communicators and the thing that I try to do and hopefully I succeed is, is first of all, just, you know, a- avoid a lot of jargon. Every field develops its own jargon for internal use. Uh, if, a, you know, if you're talking to, a, you know, somebody's uh, some random person I just invented, this nice old lady, somebody's grandmother, and she says she's had a heart attack. When you're a physician talking to her, there's no need to call that a myocardial infarction. Start talking about <laughs> troponin levels, right? Just don't go there. Uh, tell them, tell folks what they need to know in language that that is familiar to them, because it's not their job to know your field. It's your job to know their field. And that's kind of the way I look at this, where I've always been very, very interested in the clinical science behind the work that we do. Theoretically, you can be a statistician without learning a lot uh, about the actual clinical uh, details. You can, in the sense that, again, the data don't care where they came from, but it's always been interesting to me to be able to learn about the actual work being done uh, by all the folks who are, again, you know, the R&D side, the regulatory side, the clinical affairs uh, side, all that, because it just makes me better at being able to speak to people in a way that makes sense. Right on. Well, I think that we we share that value then of being interested is some of the best things. Last thing I'll ask you, kind of a lighthearted one. Do you have a, a favorite statistical method or test of significance? Like, what would you leave us with as the most interesting? <laughs> I mentioned Ronald Fisher before, and that really was a coincidence. Uh, but the answer is Fisher's exact test, <laughs> and Fisher's yeah. exact is a test for uh, for all those of you who. Uh, who don't do this all the time. Uh, Fisher's exact test is a test for comparing two groups of binary outcomes. You've got a pass fail and you've got two groups of pass fails. And a lot, a lot of trials are that, right? We love binary outcomes in clinical trials because the idea that something succeeded or it failed is clean. It's understandable. uh, Everyone can work with it. And, and you don't have to worry about, again, a lot of nuance. So when you have two groups and they can either pass or fail, the test that compares the results between the two groups in a randomized trial uh, is Fisher's exact. And it's named after, yes, Ronald Fisher. And it, it's my favorite because, A, I use it all the time. And, B, I just like to tell that story about Ronald Fisher. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, that is the exact right moment to wrap it up and say, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a little bit of your wisdom. Thank you so much, Frank. I I really appreciate the time here. And uh, thanks to everybody. Indeed. And folks, that's been another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, make sure you check us out on our website, medicalalleypodcast.org, or you can find us on Apple, Spotify, or even on our YouTube channel now. And hey, would you do me one little favor? Would you share this episode with just one other person? If everyone listening did that, we'd help spread this story and all the other incredible stories coming out of this community a little bit further. I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, have a great day.